those words really kind of stand out in that moment. Those words, alone in my sorrows and dead in my sin. Lost without hope, no place to begin. I know that of, of the people who are in this room today, I know that there are some of you who that describes life right now. You know rock bottom, you've hit rock bottom, you're pretty sure there's literally nowhere else to go but up. You know the feeling of alone in your sorrow, of dead in your sin, lost without hope, no place. You know that well. Your life story starts with those three sentences. Maybe for you, though, your life story doesn't start with those three sentences because it starts with, I used to be alone in my sorrow, dead in my sin. Maybe, maybe for you, your life story looks something like that. Or maybe for you, you don't know that feeling, and I, and I pray that continues, but I'm going to warn you, it probably won't. But regardless of, of what part of that story you fit into, the story of Jesus' life that we're talking about today as we conclude 168 hours is the story you need to hear. Now, I struggled all week with how we could introduce this with, in a creative and funny way and how I could tell you a great story or a funny story or make you laugh or some, do something silly to really grab your attention. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that all that matters is that you hear this story. And whether you, you've grown up in church and you've been doing this Jesus thing your whole life or you're new to it, you probably have a little bit of idea of the story. But here, here's my hope and my prayer for today. My, my hope and my prayer is that today is the first time that you pretend you know nothing and you hear this story again because I promise you this, that this story will grip you. Because what happens is it almost becomes passe. Yeah, Jesus went to the cross. I got one on my necklace. He went to the cross. We've got one in the living room, whatever. But all week as I was, as I was cutting and, and pacing this story together from the different biographies of Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and as I was reminding myself of all of these details that I've always known, but, but allowing them to, to bubble back up fresh in my memory like I hadn't heard them before, it's amazing how overcoming this story is. Because it's the story of, of a little boy who's born to a woman named Mary and who lives a relatively normal life, as, as normal as full man and full God boy Jesus can, until he turns 30. And at age 30, he begins this, this ministry, and he starts traveling and teaching and sharing and, and leading and healing and performing miracles and all of this. The most amazing thing about Jesus' life, though, can be summed up in the word perfection, because it doesn't matter what part of the story you read, what you'll never read and what you'll never find is a single wrong that Jesus does. From the very beginning, he never lied, cheated, stole. He never committed adultery or thought about it. He never was, was angry to the point of hatred, to the point of murder. He never killed. He never lusted. He never coveted. I mean, none of those things that we do on like an hourly basis, he did none of those things. And here's why that's important. 
It's important because from the beginning, God said that doing those things leads to your death. And so because Jesus did none of those things, then theoretically he should never have to die. But that's not how the story goes. Because this story of perfection leads to year 33 of this man's life. And he's been causing quite an uproar. People all over the world know who this Jesus fellow is. And they're following him in the hundreds and in the thousands. And the religious leaders of the day do not like it. Because what he's doing is he's subverting the way they've been doing things for hundreds and thousands of years. And they don't want to put up with it anymore. And so they finally get together and they come up with a plan to put him on trial for blasphemy because he keeps claiming to be God. And, and you claim to be God, even if you really are in his case, you can be put to death. And so last week we talked about how they put together this sham of a trial that doesn't really follow the rules and regulations of Israelite court at the time. And it doesn't really go the way it's supposed to, but they get the result that they want. And the result that they want is they get to convict him and they get to put him to death. We talked a little bit last week about how when they decide to put him to death, they can't do it on their own. They have to take him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And it's there when they take him to the governor that this story really starts to cause a lot of pain. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. So as this journey starts, when he's on his way to Pilate, they blindfold him and they just start clubbing him. And you can almost hear that evil laugh and that sneer. The Romans don't care who this guy is. They don't care what he did. They're just evil, nasty guys looking to take out some anger on somebody. And they say, fine, you're a prophet. Blindfold, prophesy, who hit you? Who was that? Who did that? And the whole time, He's silent. He doesn't move. He doesn't react. He doesn't talk. And so he stands before Pilate, and he speaks to Pilate, but he doesn't answer the way Pilate wants him to, and Pilate says, I have no choice but to put him to death. And so Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again, saying, Kael, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And when Pilate had someone flogged, they would tie your hands together and tie them to a big wooden post right in the middle of town. And then they would take this whip, and I don't tell you this to be overly graphic or to make your stomach turn. I tell you this because it's the truth. They would take these whips that they had made, and they were called a cat of nine tails. And it was long leather straps like you would imagine a whip to look. But instead of just using plain old whips, they would put sharp things on them like, like rocks and glass and anything they could find to really, really bring in the pain. Because the way the whip worked, the whip worked is when you whipped it and it and it would reach his back, it would grab into the skin of the person's back that you were whipping. And so then in order to remove the whip and have it back, you would have to pull, and the, and the whip would just grab at the skin. So you've probably seen the pictures, you've maybe heard the images, but you can imagine the sort of pain that you incur from this, right? And the Jewish tradition held that you couldn't be whipped more than 39 times, but odds were they went for the full 39. 
And so now he's been knocked in the head, he's been smacked, he's been slapped, and he's being whipped across his back. And while the soldiers are doing this, there's a couple other soldiers out in a field nearby who are gathering all of the thorny bushes they can find, and they're molding it into a crown of thorns. And again, it's one of those things that you've seen a hundred times and you think nothing of, but I have a friend who, who went on a task one year, and he said, I want to make a crown of thorns. And he put on thick work gloves, and he was wearing thick clothes, and he still bled from his fingers and from his arms and from his hands from doing this, this making this mock crown of thorns. Because it's sharp and it's hard. But these soldiers went through the pain of making one themselves to make it, to then put it on his head. But the, the word is very clear here. They didn't just set it on his head. They smash it down onto his head. And so now his back is, is torn to bits. There's blood coming from his forehead and from the top of his head. And all of this pain continues. And they begin to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And this is a, a weird thing to imagine. But think with me about having having all of those lashes across your back. And think then about putting clothes on your own back. Think about the pain that would come even from just that feeling. Think about hearing the mockery. Think about hearing the, the struggle. Think about hearing the pain. Think about how this continues. And the whole time, in this impossible, unbearable pain, he doesn't say a word. They continue the whips, they continue the hitting, they continue the spitting and the mocking, and he doesn't say a word. Here's the most fascinating part. is all they have to do, all he has to do, is just speak. Is just say, be still. Is just say, come down. Whatever he wants to say, and thousands of angels and hundreds of, of, of things from the ground, whatever he wants can happen. He's fully God. He can make any miracle happen in that moment and make all of this stop and make all of the pain go away, but instead he just keeps absorbing this pain because he knows even though he didn't deserve this pain, even though he didn't deserve this treatment, he knows that he is on a mission. And so after the beatings and after the crown and after things continue, they, they must leave the center of town and, take, and go to the place called Golgotha. And the way that the Roman executions worked, there probably were posts that were relatively permanent, but he would have had to carry the, the horizontal piece to his cross. And you can imagine how heavy a horizontal wooden beam that could hold up an average-sized man would be. And so it's probably six or eight feet wide, and it's a couple inches, several inches thick, and he has to carry it on his back. There's no other way. So now this rough-hewn wood and this, this stuff that is probably filled with splinters and not, not a smooth board from Lowe's, as you could imagine, it's, this is a nasty old piece of wood that's going to hold him up. It's tearing at his back even more, and, and he hasn't eaten in hours, and things are just getting worse and worse, and he can't make it on the journey across town, and, and he collapses somewhere in the middle. 
And a certain man from Cyrene named Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This wasn't the first execution that took place at Golgotha, and it no doubt wasn't the last. The Romans made a good habit of executing as many people as possible, as visibly as possible. And so Golgotha wasn't just a random place on a, on a, on a random spot in town. It was one of the most visible places on, in, the, in the city. And so they go up to the top of this hill, and there's two others at least being crucified that day, if not more. But there, they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for, their, for their, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And so when the, when the cross makes it to Golgotha, they tie Jesus' arms to the, to the beam, and then comes the the most difficult part. And they hold his arms down and they drive a nail right in between his wrist bones. And you probably have heard or seen people say that they would have done it in the hands, but to to be totally graphic with you, that your hand bones aren't strong enough and it would have broken. So right here in between the two bones of the wrist is where they would drive the first nail. And then they would go to the other side and they would do the same thing. And you can hear, right, you can hear the screams coming from that. You You can even begin to imagine the pain that that undergoes. And then they take your legs and they cross them over at the perfect angle and they drive the other, the third nail right in between the bones of your ankle and the thud of the hammer is drowned out by the agonizing screams of the men but I want you to know this that the nails didn't keep Jesus on the cross his love and compassion for us is what held him there that even in that moment when he's been nailed to the cross, tied up with ropes, hung up, hung up to die, in that moment he still could call down a thousand angels. He still could cause the storm. Whatever it took, he could do it. But it wasn't because his nails held him there. It was because he knew you and I needed him to be there. It's because you and I are so loved by a man who didn't deserve this punishment, that he took the punishment for you and for me. I often hear the stories of the, the mother who, who lifts the car because her toddler's trapped under it or any of those crazy kind of adrenaline stories. And I, I always revert back to this story because I think about how much pain he must have been in in those moments and how that would have done anyone else in, but then I think about the overwhelming love and compassion that he had on millennia's worth of people, 
on the people he knew that someday would be able to have the hope of eternity if he could just hang on. And we don't have to get too deeply into the medical science of this for you to know that it doesn't take long for a man hanging on a cross to die. If it's not the blood loss from the floggings and the beatings, and, and in Jesus' case, the crown of thorns on his head, if it's not, if it's not just the mere psychological trauma that kills people from the, from the amount of pain that they went through, the hardest part of hanging on a cross, most scientists say, was the breathing. Most people who died on the cross died of asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. Because when you're hanging there like they were, it's hard to breathe. When you're being hung and you're, you don't have anything to stand on and there's no support, every breath is a struggle because if you push up using your wrists, the pain from the nails would drive you insane. And if you push up using your legs, it's the same situation. So they're hanging there in an agony you and I can't even imagine. And those who pass by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, if he is the chosen one, the soldiers came up and mocked him, and they offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And if we're in this situation, if we're the ones hanging on the cross, our mind is racing, right? We're thinking of how we could get back at them. We're thinking, I'll remember that someday. But instead, here's what's on Jesus' mind. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. These people are mocking, they're ridiculing, they're screaming, they're shouting, they're insulting him. And he looks at them with compassion. And he looks at them with mercy. And he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I, I have no doubt that the people in this crowd, some of them were the very people who five days ago saw him riding into town on a donkey and shouted, Hosanna, our king is here. Hosanna, save us. I have no doubt that some of these people at some point or another were following along. There might have been people there who saw him feed the 5,000 with just the five loaves and the two fish. There might have very well been people who he healed of sickness and disease standing in that crowd saying, you're not who you said you were at all. But none of that mattered. And he simply just said, forgive them. Amongst the noise of the crowd and the mocking and the jeering, though, Jesus hears two voices very distinctly. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. 
But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since, when are, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the midst of his own pain, in the midst of his own agony, Jesus hears the desperate, the hurting, the crying. He hears and he feels their pain, and he takes it on himself and says, let me offer you this hope. Let me offer you this chance. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three, a voice, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then some standing heard this, and they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. And it ends. In this moment, the other biographies tell us that the ground shook and this darkness overcomes and the earthquake's happening and inside the temple of the Israelites, the holy of holies, the curtain that separates God from all of humanity, the 50-foot tall curtain is ripped from top to bottom, signifying that once and for all, Jesus has bridged the gap that existed between God and humanity for all of time. And in this moment, everyone who knew, everyone who was aware had to realize this was something special. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want to leave the bodies on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And this is a key part of the story. If the men were hanging on for too long, what they would do is they would come by and break your legs, which would then make it even more painful to push up on your legs and to find a way to catch your breath, because as you hung and as you sagged down, it was more and more difficult for your lungs to operate. But in the book of Isaiah, long before Jesus came, they said, not a, bo not a bone of his body will be broken. And so Jesus passed before the time came for the men to break their legs to further fulfill the prophecy of God promising who was coming to rescue us. And as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. 
Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated opposite the tomb. And this moment comes when it all seems like it's over. It's done. The darkness had descended. He had breathed his last. He had cried his last. And now it's over. This moment that was forever etched in history is over. And I wonder at what point did the disciples start to see what was happening? Because just that night before, while they were eating the Passover, Jesus had taken a piece of bread and he said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. And then he had passed around the cup and he had said, this is my blood poured out for you. And in that moment, the disciples didn't really get it. But now, 24 hours later, as they see him crying out, breathing his last breath, I wonder if now, if they're getting it. And I wonder the same thing for us. Because every week we come to a moment when we have communion together. And we do it intentionally because the reason we're here is because of the story we just read. The reason we get together is because of what Jesus did for us. But I can't help but wonder if, because we do it every week, because we hear it all the time, if it becomes routine. And so here's what we're going to do over the next few minutes. Justin's going to come up and play for a moment, and there's, there's three tables. There's two up here in the front, and there's one in the back. And at each table, there's bread and there's a cup. But at each table also, there's three big nails. And they're not rusty, and they weren't the original ones that they used, but you're going to get the point. Because I want to challenge you, as you come to your turn at the table, just to pick up one of those nails and run your finger along the length of it. We don't know the exact details, but but we can assume that they were pretty large nails to hold up grown men. And we don't know exactly what shape they took, but we can assume they looked something like that. And so as this moment passes, and I I don't want you to miss this opportunity, but I also don't want you to feel manipulated I want you to be able to just take this moment for yourself and to say, this is the nail that he chose for me.